Amen. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. You can grab a seat. Oh, you already did it. Great job. Uh, and today we're going to be in the book of Acts. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn there. If you've got it a digital copy like an app, tap there. We're totally cool with that. We want you to kind of see where we're getting this stuff. And I'm going to be telling many things from the book of Acts. There's going to be very few direct maybe quotes from the book of Acts. So you're just going to have to kind of follow quickly if you want to do that. If not, please don't panic. We're going to have those words on the screen. And we'd love to give you a Bible in a readable English translation so that you can go home and, as David said, read this word, which we consider, we believe, as have Christians for 2,000 years, to be God's word uh, to you. And longer if you count the Old Testament. So I want to talk to you today about, um, gosh, about encouragement. I I think it's a thing um, that we don't give the value we should. And I'm going to try and make that case today. Um, So every church, probably every religion, I don't know enough to really say this with authority, but certainly every church has some kind of a process for guys to become like pastors, there's some sort of a vetting, there's some sort of a hurdle, if they're good churches, where they, they say, okay, I know that you want to do this or that we've told you you can do this, but let's actually make sure that you're a good candidate for this. Because people can have crazy theology and people can have crazy character and people can have crazy sort of ideas about how the church should run. And so it's incumbent on people who are already leaders in the church to give feedback. And maybe even give like road signs, red signs, stop signs for people that want to be uh, pastors. In the, in the tradition that I grew up in, there's not like churches on top of churches. Every church is kind of its own thing. And so you would have the pastors of that church that would assemble what they called an ordination council to vet you before you get sort of let loose on the world. <laughs> uh, and the church that I went to, it was this giant, giant church. And so the pastors were guys that like I worked for, but I didn't really know, um, like I wasn't hanging out with them every day. And they did this ordination council. And like I put on a tie and like walked into this room and there they all are, you know, kind of arrayed around me. And you're ready for like like really difficult sort of tricky theological questions or, or you're, you're expecting something that's going to be like some really like convoluted leadership situation. Here's what I would do, step A, B, and C, like this nuanced, difficult, intimidating grilling. But instead, uh, the pastor, Pastor David, said, listen, man, we actually, we feel like we know you well enough that we don't want to grill you today. Uh, what we want to do instead is encourage you. And the reason we want to encourage you is not because you're great and we just want to tell you, but we want to encourage you because as you do this, you're going to want to quit. (laughs) Oh, cool. Hey, I'm out of here. You know, Um, they're just like, this is terrible and wonderful and you got to stick it out. But if you're going to stick it out, you need a lot of encouragement. So what we want to do is create a moment tonight where we give you encouragement so that when you want, not if, but when you want to quit, you don't. And then they went around the room and they encouraged me. That was specific. Here's why you should not quit ministry. And um, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember what they said. Uh, they said a lot of things. It's kind of like your wedding. Like, you don't remember what happened. There's pictures. But there's not pictures of an ordination council. Like, there's not a transcript. They just said things. And I sat there and like, thank you. Yes. So I, I pass. You know, like, <laughs> whatever. I remember one guy, this guy named Bill Davis. He said, you know, when we ask you to do something, you, you try to do it next guy. Like he, that was all he had for me. He didn't say I succeed at the things I try to do or do them well. He just said, when you try to do them, when we ask you to, 
you try. You do try. I'm like, all right. It's the only one I remember. It's kind of a slanted compliment. But what they were doing uh, was encouragement. What they were doing was something that is lauded in Scripture, that is held at a very high level, that is seen as something necessary, as something wonderful. And yet, we usually see it as something sort of downplayed. You know, I mean, it is something sort of second fiddle. Like to be the encourager as an act is to step behind somebody else. Like to encourage somebody is to be the helper. And I don't want to be the helper. I want to be the doer. I, I, I want to be the one who did it, not the one who helped do it. And our culture is all about the doer, not about the helper. Go to Home Depot. It's where doers get more. Yeah. Sounds great. And you're like, yes, that's me. I'm a doer. And then you realize, like, I'm just painting. I don't want to do this, you know. <laughs> but it's, it's how doers get more done. It's not how helpers better help out other doers. We just are not built this way. I, I think there's something broken in us about how we see the role of being an encourager or a helper. And yet Jesus, um, on the night when he was betrayed, like before the Lord's Supper, is, is speaking to his disciples, and he actually says, it's good that he's leaving. And you think the disciples immediately went, nope, <laughs> that's not true. I don't know what you're about to say, and I know you're Jesus, but it is not true that it's good for you to go away. You're Jesus. We want you. But he said, no, 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 it's good that I leave, because if I leave, I'll ask my Father, he will send the Holy Spirit, I'll send a helper. It says in John 14, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, and that's translating a Greek word called parakletos. Now, usually when you say, here's the Greek word, and you go, ooh, what does the Greek word mean? You just say the English word. Like, it's just one-to-one -one usually. But sometimes there are really rich concepts that sort of overspill specific words in English. And the word helper is there and whatever, but it sort of is not big enough to hold everything we're saying by this parakletos, this encourager, this one who comes and brings something that you need, this helper. But he's describing the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, as the parakletos. He doesn't describe him as like the gift giver that's going to rain fire on you and fill you to do miracles in the Pentecost. Like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm in. He, he says, no, 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 this, this reason that I'm leaving the world, oh, we're sending is better for you than I go because I'm sending, yes, what are you sending? A helper, <laughs> an encourager. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you will know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. He talks about the spirit, the one who gives and gives and gives, the one who submits to the son and submits to the father, the one who encourages, the one who provides, the one who is our helper. And in the New Testament, if we're going to finish out this Good God series, and there's a lot of people we're skipping, <laughs> you can only do it so long, but, but, but if we're going to finish well, there's a guy that I really want to talk about because he's actually responsible for most of the New Testament. He's a guy who I think is the most responsible for the fact that, that non-ethnically Jewish people could become Christians. And that's a big deal if you read through the New Testament. If all the Old Testament, they're very concerned with being children of Abraham, which is a, an ethnic, a, a genetic designation. 
But always God was talking about like through Abraham, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. He's always got this vision. And, and at the time of Christ, like through the church is when that actually happens, when all the nations are going to be blessed. And it happens a ton in the Old Testament. We don't have time to get into it, but, but this is when it's going to happen. And, and the guy through whom I think you could argue, the one person I think you could argue, even more than Peter, who we talked about last week, you could argue, is responsible for the fact that any of us, I'm not Jewish, any of us who are ethnically not Jewish can call ourselves Christians, um, is this one guy. His name is Joseph of Cyprus. And if you don't know who that is, okay, well, yeah, because he never really went by Joe. He always went by his nickname, and his nickname was Barnabas. Oh, that doesn't tell me anymore. Okay, well, Barnabas was a way of nicknaming this guy to mean son of encouragement. Son of the encourager. And that word, when they say son of the encourager, son of encouragement, they actually use that same word, parakletos, the the word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit. The nickname given by this guy, given to this guy by the apostles who were in that room as Jesus described the Holy Spirit as son of the encourager. He was a doer and he was a helper. And today, I want to just show you how he was a doer because he was a helper. This guy is all over the book of Acts. And and if you don't know the New Testament, we have the Old Testament in the Bible, and it talks about the stuff before Jesus. And then we have the New Testament in the Bible, which talks about Jesus and then the stuff after Jesus. And and the first four books are these eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and ministry that we call the Gospels, which just means good news words, the, the Gospels. And then right after those four sort of looks at Jesus's life and ministry, we have a book called the Acts. And the Acts of the Apostles takes what happens next and puts it all kind of before us. And it helps to sort out a lot of what you see throughout the rest of the New Testament. And in this book of Acts, this guy Barnabas is a huge part of the story. And I want to point out sort of three ways that he's a huge part of the story. And then I want us to see and hopefully start to really grasp the depth and the beauty of being an encourager. So what happened? Uh, You have the people that are the apostles, and they start speaking about Jesus after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and then ascension. They see him go, and then the angels are like smacking him on the back of the head, saying, what are you staring into heaven for? Get to work. They then have the Holy Spirit come, and the Holy Spirit speaks through them. We have the the Pentecost that takes place in Acts chapter 2. And thousands of people become believers, just like that. You have the next chapter, the next chapter, thing after thing starts to happen, and this church starts to explode in numbers, and then kind of explode literally, because they have a persecution that takes place. This guy, Stephen, gets killed, and Stephen was a big deal. He was a a lovely, lovely man who cared well for the people of this church, and the, the persecutors of the church killed him. They stoned him. Well, in that persecution that arises after the death of Stephen, the church sort of explodes, sort of scatters out from Jerusalem to these other places. And some of the guys that left from there, people from Cyprus and Cyrene, start to tell in the city of Antioch, non-Jewish Gentiles about Jesus, and those people start to believe. Now, Antioch, this city you can go to today. It's now in Turkey rather than Syria, but it's on the border. And it was one of those Turkish cities that got hit really hard by the earthquakes earlier this year. It's still a real place. Go there if you want. And in Antioch, these new versions of Christians, these people that were Christian but were not Jewish, 
the word kind of gets back to Jerusalem and they're trying to figure out what to do because Peter had his vision. He interacted with Cornelius. This should be the next step. It seems like the next step, but they're freaking out. So who do they send to investigate and lead? Barnabas, it's going to be great. Let's send Barney. So he goes and he becomes a big deal. He becomes the leader of kind of the first megachurch of all non-Jewish converts in Antioch is where they're first called Christians. He also becomes an advocate for a specific person. So not only did, did Barnabas have to set aside whatever kind of trips ups and hang-ups and prejudices that the other people had in Jerusalem when he goes to be the pastor of the Gentiles and hang out around the wild, crazy, dirty Gentiles, he also goes and hangs out with uh, Saul. There's a man in the New Testament who, who was a very passionate follower of who he saw God to be, and who he saw God to be was not Jesus. And so he actually became a persecutor of the church. He wasn't the actual executioner. He wasn't the sword bearer or the nail nailer or the stone thrower. He, he was the guy, though, that dealt with all the legal and theological issues to make sure that these people could be killed. And he would assemble the lists and set the date and hold the coats and make sure that these Christians were slaughtered. He was a killer of Christians until he met Christ. <laughs> and meeting Christ, he becomes a follower. And as a follower, he then walks out into the Christian community. And of course, they all hide because yesterday he was killing Christians. Except for Barnabas. You know, he's preaching and people are coming to Christ. He has these disciples even in the city that he's at. They decide they're going to kill him in this area. And so he has to escape and he escapes and he gets to Jerusalem and he walks out and he's just sort of this newborn babe. He doesn't know how he's going to connect with the men that he's been trying to kill, the wives that he's been trying to slaughter. They all hide from him except for Barnabas. Barnabas comes and finds him. Barnabas comes and says to him, like, God forgave me. Why can't he forgive Saul, Paul, same guy, two names, one Jewish, one Roman. They kind of flip back and forth in Acts. We'll call him Paul, just to make it simple. But Barnabas was able to look at him and see not some wonderful gifting. You know, now everybody wants to be the guy that found Paul. Everybody wants to be the one who bet on Paul, you know, who was early in on the investment of the Paul business because Paul was successful. He's somebody that writes a lot of the New Testament. He wrote Romans that David was quoting from earlier when he's saying, therefore, there is no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, amen. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, that's Paul. Now we all want to be on the Paul train. But at that time, they didn't know that he's a genius. They just knew that he's a persecutor. It's Barnabas who steps in and brings Paul in to the Christian community, not for Barnabas's sake, as though he's going to look great as the finder of this great talent. I think he did it for Paul's sake. He also becomes famously an advocate for another guy named Mark. Now, Mark or John Mark went with Paul and Barnabas early on their first missionary journey. Barnabas did not go with Paul on his second and third journeys because after that first journey, they're going to go on a second. And Barnabas says, listen, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul said, absolutely not, because on the first missionary journey, at some point, this John Mark guy leaves. And we don't know why, but it couldn't have been good because when they were going to go again, Barnabas said, let's give him another shot. And Paul said, no. They disagreed. It became a sharp disagreement. And they went their separate ways. And at that point, Barnabas drops out of the narrative of Acts. 
So there's a part of you that's American that says, all right, well, see, clearly Paul was right. Barnabas was wrong because the limelight stays on Paul. Listen, that's where you want to be. Don't you want to be Paul? Don't you want to be the one with your name on everything? Don't you want to be the impressive guy that has the rest of this book written about? Like, clearly Paul was right. Barnabas was wrong. But, whoa, that's us putting a value system onto Scripture that's not there. Because the scripture is not about honoring these people, though I think we can in some ways. The scripture is about the ministry that he does through these people. And though Paul goes on to do amazing things, and I thank God for not only Paul and his ministry, but the rest of the book of Acts, Barnabas also did. See, Barnabas continues to care for this guy, John Mark. And John Mark not only becomes reestablished, not only becomes again valuable to the kingdom, but John Mark becomes so incredibly useful that at the end of his ministry in 2 Timothy, Paul says, hey, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark. You got to bring Mark because he is useful to me for ministry. That guy, that guy Mark, he's also the one who sat at Peter's feet, collected all of his sayings about Jesus and put them together into the first written gospel, which was the gospel of Mark. Written first because we can tell that both Matthew and Luke pulled a lot of material directly from Mark. You take away Luke, you don't, I'm sorry, you take away Barnabas, you don't get John Mark, and you don't get the Apostle Paul. Anything's possible. Somebody else could have been like, you're not going to go Barnabas? I'll go. You know, I don't know. Sure. But this is what happened. Barnabas was the one who saw these guys and said, let's keep going. Let's figure it out. And as he did, as he helped them, they did incredible things that have changed humanity. This is the guy that we're talking about. And of course, there are problems with Barnabas as well. Barnabas does fall in this place called Galatia. There's a time later in his ministry where he's in this place that's a lot of Gentiles and Jews. And here comes Peter and here come these other guys from Jerusalem. And he gets confused for a time and and pulls back from the Galatians. But it's so out of character. There's a a New Testament scholar named Archie France that does a, a helpful thing here when he says, Barnabas, in the impressive company of Peter himself, gave into pressure from Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, to withdraw from table fellowship, eating with the Gentile believers. No doubt. judging by Barnabas's record as a whole, it was a temporary lapse. It's so inconsistent with Barnabas's liberal, meaning like willingness to accept new attitude to the Gentile mission elsewhere. I wonder though whether it is entirely untypical of the man. Barnabas could be very firm when he saw an issue clear in front of him. But at the center, and that's the British spelling, this is a British guy, it's not a mistake. Just want to say that. Of his campaigns were people At the center of his campaigns were people rather than debating points. The outsiders, the suspect, the failure. Ooh, ooh, the failure. I want to, yeah. For them, he would fight. Even against Paul himself, as he did in the case of John Mark. He would fight for acceptance, for understanding, and for a second chance. But it's a big deal to be an encourager. We need these people. You need to be these people. You, when you see these people, when you find them, you need to be like right close to them. And you'll want to be because they're encouragers. But you're going to want to encourage them for their encouragement. You're going to want to be humbled by their humility. Because this Barnabas guy does something unbelievable in the book of Acts. He's incredibly important. And how does he... Do it. Like if he has the superpower of encouragement, if, if he has this kind of unbelievable humility, how, how, what's like the spider bite? 
that makes him into Spider-Man? Like, what's the, what's the weird sort of circumstance that brings about this level of grace? And I think his humility, the fact that he thought of others more than himself, is getting close to that reason. See, Barnabas was able to see other people and value them even above himself. And let's take for a second the case of Saul, the Christian killer. When Barnabas decided to get close to Paul, he had to let go of some prejudices in himself. Like he had to have some animosity towards the whole class of these Jews that were hating Christians and killing Christians. He had to be able to forgive Paul. You think about the fact that Paul was the instigator at the death of Stephen. The early church, and this is what is characterized by. It's characterized by the grace of God. It's characterized by the movement of the Holy Spirit. It's characterized by incredible teaching. But the church itself is characterized by closeness. They're giving up they have so that they can care for one another. They're eating with each other in one another's homes daily. They are tight. And this guy, Stephen, is not only an encourager to the church, he's not only a solver of the church's first problem with the, who gets to feed the widows first. He was a great guy. You're telling me that he and Barnabas weren't close personal friends? If they weren't, can't you just guess that he would have loved Stephen even from afar? What does it take to be the guy who goes and loves the guy who killed your guy? It takes incredible forgiveness. It also takes incredible bravery because he's putting himself in danger. What if Paul flips? First guy that's going to get a knife in his back is the guy standing next to him. And yet Barnabas does it. He takes a chance. He doesn't take a chance for his own sake. He takes a chance on Paul for Paul's sake. He was able to look at the killer of his friend and see in him somebody worth loving, somebody who had the capacity to be redeemed. How did he understand that? How did he make that bet? Well, he did because he understood the gospel. He was able to see how God loves us. See, Barnabas really did understand that he was somebody who had to be forgiven by Jesus just as he was hoping that Paul would be somebody that Jesus forgave. It's possible for you to look at people that you look down on and feel that while, yes, you need to be forgiven by Jesus, you can understand why Jesus would forgive you. Hello. You're the kind of person that Jesus is looking for. Yeah, there's some picadillos in the past, but... Yeah, yeah, I mean, he would forgive me, but clearly Jesus wouldn't forgive that less than person. Well, that's not the gospel, friends. You're insisting at that point that God's forgiveness of you is somehow deserved by you. That God couldn't forgive them because they can't deserve it. Wait a minute. That's not how forgiveness looks. Barnabas understood the gospel. The gospel is that we're separated from God by our sin, and that separation is total. It's a total unmaking. You are now a lawbreaker. If you're a lawbreaker, you can't become righteous by doing the law. You've already broken it. You murder somebody, you're a murderer. Doesn't matter if you pay your taxes on time. 
Barnabas understood that he was separated from God by his sin. And the only way to be forgiven, to be brought back into relationship with God, is if a substitute brought himself into the situation. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus, being the Son of God, was able to live not only a perfectly pure life, but to die a sinner's death so that the obedience that he had could be given to our account and the sin, the brokenness that we have could be charged to his account, that he would pay for our sin and deliver his righteousness so that you can stand before God and have you the, the Romans 8.1 promise said over you that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> that's, that's what the gospel says, and it implies that you're not worthy of being forgiven. You're forgiven out of love. You're forgiven out of grace, out of his goodness, not yours. Which implies further that everybody around you, no matter how despicable they may be, not just seen, but, but be, they're also candidates for God's forgiveness. They're also people that we need to be cheering for, seeking, ooh, gross, no, seeking. Listen to what Jesus said, and this is going to trip you up. It's tripped me up for a long time. In Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their sins, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I'll tell you why that trips me up, because it sounds like my forgiveness of other people earns my salvation from God. Is that what he's saying? Does, does he mean that your salvation depends on an action? No. Does he mean that your salvation does depend on your forgiving others? Depend on your forgiving others? Yes. How do we know that? How do we see that? Well, because if you can look at other people and decide that they are less deserving of forgiveness than you, that means you never understood God's forgiveness in the first place and instead think that he owes you salvation. It is just the fact that if you don't have the capacity to forgive others, you've never really experienced God's forgiveness of you. So much so that if you don't forgive others, he can say one-to-one, -one, you don't know his forgiveness. I'm sorry. I know that you know people that you can't forgive. It's going to be a miracle. Yeah, that's the right word for it. I'm not putting myself in your place. I'm not telling you that you're going to do it quickly or do it well. But I am saying that if you know the forgiveness that God has for you, you can give forgiveness to the one who has injured you. And I'm not saying it because it's me. I'm saying what Jesus said. If we're going to take his name, we're going to follow his words. That's what Jesus said. You have to be able to understand that if he went to the cross for you, it's because the only way to save you was Jesus going to the cross. You don't deserve forgiveness. You're granted forgiveness. That means that you also can forgive others too. Barnabas was able to. That's how Barnabas was able to identify people that were like candidates for his ministry. <laughs> That's how he was able to go find Paul because he was a Christian killer. That's how he was able to go find John Mark because he was a gospel ministry destroyer and betrayer. How do we become like that? 
How do we gain this capacity to love one another through our brokenness? Not just to forgive, but to like cheer for and work for each other, to stay in fellowship with each other. Well, I think you got to do what Barnabas did in going to the cross. He understood something of his salvation, which was the fulcrum that was the, the, the point at which he was able to then forgive and love others. And, and a way to do that is Psalm 103. You, you got to keep the gospel in your head. You got to think about it. You got to take time daily to think it, to pray it, to sing it, to command your soul to remember it. That's what Psalm 103 does. So verse one through five, put it in your heart. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that's within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. He's describing a means of remembering, of thinking about, and responding to what God has done for him. God who has forgiven all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Amen, 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 amen. Yes, I want that. I want that. I want to understand that. I want to run that through my head so much at so many different times that my heart responds to it and understands it and my life conforms to it. Great. But while you're going to use that to change your heart, is there something more concrete that you can do? You know, we talked about evangelism, and I gave you this wonderful task of trying to take your testimony, put it into two paragraphs, and you all did it. And it was really impactful, and it all changed the way that you thought about evangelism. I know every single one of you did it. Is there something like that, though, that can also help you to be dependent on God and have a humility that lets you go and find other people and love them well? Yeah. It's the other thing. It's the thing that Barnabas was first known for in Acts 4. It says, there wasn't a needy person among that church for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles, apostles, not impossibles, the apostles, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. How did Barnabas gain real humility? It's at the cross. But what did he do that reinforced that truth? He gave. He gave sacrificially and joyfully of the material things that he had. We know from Corinthians that he later had to work for his living as he went about doing ministry. Why didn't he have anything in the piggy bank? Because he had already sold it and given it to the ministry of the church. What helped to reinforce his humility? It was giving. You need to be regular, joyful, sacrificial givers to this church. Bring it. Get mad. Give me that weird, awkward silence. I love it. I'm going to drink it. Give it get all the awkwardness you want. God says, if you will be faithful to give, this is what Paul said to the church that was uh, planted by Paul and Barnabas. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Is he saying if you give money, you'll get more? No. He is saying, though, if you give money, you are going to abound in every good work that God has. 
Sure, he can bless you with a billion dollars. He can do whatever he wants. But is that the promise? I don't think so. The promise seems to be in this passage that as you give, God responds by making you the kind of person who abounds in every good work. Certainly Barnabas' life shows that. Don't you want it? I want it for you. I want to be an encourager. If I've only got one good guide sermon left, why Paul? And why not Paul? Why Barnabas? Well, because I want to be Barnabas. Like, Paul's great. Go be Paul too. But I want, I want to be Barnabas. And I want Barnabas at the church that I go to. I want you to be Barnabas. I want you to want this. But how do you get it? Well, through the humility that comes, that understanding the cross. How do you get it? By the lifestyle that works that out by forgiving other people and going after them. By a lifestyle that shows that through regular, joyful, sacrificial giving. Boy, I pray that we would do that. And we become the kind of church that's full of these kinds of loving, forgiving, accepting, encouraging, bold Barnabases. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I do ask for your grace. Grace not to get lynched as I leave here telling everybody to give money, but also grace, Lord, for us as a church to understand uh, the goodness of the obedience you've called us to. Father, let us be a group of people who say yes to you, even though it seems really hard to us. Because we trust that the God who gave us Jesus and the God who loved us enough to die for us, to forgive us and adopt us and bring us into his family is a God that will also give us everything else also. Even if it means that our life is a life poured out like a drink offering, it'll be a life that has great reward one day. A a life that abounds in every good work. Let us be a people that value that instead of other things, Father. And for those that are not Christians and are just kind of listening in today, I pray that you would give them the grace to be very accepted by this community and to desire that kind of acceptance before a holy God. Not a God who says that black is white, that your sin isn't, but a God who says, I love you enough to die for your sin and to make you into something new. Lord, we love you. We pray that you do these things um, for your glory and our good. In your holy name we pray, amen.